Hello and Happy New Year and welcome to January 2024's Emergency Medicine Journal's Primary Survey. I'm Sarah Edwards. And I'm Rick Boddy. Hi. Hello. And we have got a smattering of papers again for you. And I'm going to kick off uh, with our paper on the consensus on acute behavioural disturbance in the UK, a multidisciplinary modified Delphi study to determine what it is and how it should be managed. So acute behavioural disturbance is something that we don't see a lot of, but it is a big problem when it presents. It can be hugely distressing for the patients, for the staff and for everyone involved. And it's really important that we understand what it is we're talking about. So this paper uh, aimed to really understand what acute behavioural disturbance was. And it got me thinking really about my experience of acute behavioural disturbance. But you know, Rick, um, you know, this is something I've probably seen a handful of times. I don't know about you. Well, I have the privilege of working in a busy emergency department in the middle of Manchester, which is obviously a very big city. And we see this quite a lot, I have to say. <laughs> it's quite common for us to see patients who are brought in restrained by six police officers. And um, it's really difficult to get control of the situation I think this is one of the riskiest presentations that we see in the emergency department you know because if you get this wrong the the patient could die and there will be a huge inquest Um, you know this could be quite often a a death in police custody essentially uh, with issues around restraint it's really difficult to get it right as well because these patients can be so agitated you need the motor skills you need to have rehearsed your decision making there's so much that goes into it the stakes are really high and um i'm really looking forward to you telling us about this paper because i think the insights it gives us will be very valuable to try and keep us safe and look after these patients as well as we possibly can yeah i mean i think you're right i think we do see an awful lot of sort of agitated patients i guess when I think of acute behavioural disturbance, and I think this is what this paper is really highlights, and we'll we'll go into that in a second, is how do you define it? Because for me, this is the extreme of the extreme. So it's the agitated patient with six police officer that is, you know, got a high temperature, that is, you know, being restrained, who is really actually unwell, as opposed to somebody who's perhaps kicking off in police custody. But... What did they do? So they did a modified Delphi um, and there isn't a standard way of doing a modified Delphi, but the the crux of it is they invited lots of experts from the police, the judiciary, custodial partners, emergency care, mental health and toxicology. And essentially they were asking them lots of statements and they were trying to get consensus amongst the statements about key things that relate to um, acute behavioural disturbances. And this covered everything from what is defined by it, how it should be managed, when should things happen and in what order. And, you know, they whittled it down round after round after round and they were left with around about 266 consensus statements amongst the 30 people that were involved in the Delphi. So quite a good mix of people involved there, Rick, I think. Yeah, I I think um, they had involved 
a quite broad group of stakeholders here, hadn't they? And, and not just emergency physicians, but also uh, patient advocacy organisations and uh, toxicologists. There's quite a l- large number of uh, organisations, the police were involved as well, which so it's quite nice to see multi-professional involvement in this. Although I guess the key point is that we own this as emergency physicians. It's our responsibility yeah, I think you're right. I think we, we do own it. Interestingly, um, the coroner's society declined because they were worried that it was imp- uh, would be implicated in court process. So, um, And a couple of other people declined because they didn't feel they had a relevant expertise, which I think is fair enough. Um, so anyway, what did they find? Well, it's definitely worth having a read of the paper. Um, I'm not going to go through all of the, the statements, but some of the things that I think... Um, are relevant for us as emergency medicine clinicians and, you know, going to work tomorrow um, or even this evening maybe is thinking about, you know, recognising the presentation of ABD. So, you know, thinking about what can you objectively see when you can't actually do observations on the patient. So things about being hot to touch, sweating, hypothermia, agitation, confusion, huge levels of anxiety, hypervigilance. Are they breathing fast? Have they got a fast heart rate? Can you see that bounding in that that you know their neck? Um, and actually, do they have a high blood pressure? Things around how the presentation became to happen and why did they end up here? Was it, you know, is this behaviour that's normal for them? Has it had a sudden onset? You know, what's triggered it? Um, and the statements go on around a lot of these, and um, but very very clear work here. Uh, trying to, you know, put the foundations down for some of the things that are important for acute behavioural disturbance. Yeah, I'd, I'd really encourage our listeners to not just listen to what we've got to say about this, because there are so many consensus statements in this paper, we couldn't possibly cover all of them. So have a read of this, because it's really important to take them all in. There are many physical features, as well as the mental and psychological manifestations that it's important for us to be aware of. And there are certain things to be aware of that, you know, the patients may require higher doses of sedatives than you might ordinarily uh, require in this context, for example. And uh, that's one you absolutely have to get right because there's no second chances in patients with this complex presentation. Yeah, I think finally what's been really highlighted by this and how I'm going to change my practice, you know, when I'm in work again is that actually agitation and acute behavioural disturbances or acute behavioural disturbance rather is not they're not different things they're part of the same entity and it's understanding at which point along the spectrum they really are and I think this is what this Delphi study is really good so for that patient that I see who is really agitated uh, tomorrow in work I'm going to be thinking well you know where are they on this um, level of anxiety, uh, agitation, and how severe are they presenting with it? Yeah, and also to remember, it's not a diagnosis. The authors said that in their conclusion. It's not a diagnosis, it's a presentation. I think that's a really important thing to sort of take in because we've got the presentation, we've got to understand what the diagnosis is. Is there something else that's behind this, something organic that, that might be explaining the acute behavioural disturbance? And we've still got to search for that. Uh, and there's also some important stuff about where the patient goes to. There's often a really important decision about whether it's the patient needs to stay in hospital or whether they might go to police custody, for example. And that, again, is a really high-stakes decision. You cannot get that wrong. Uh, and there's some really helpful guidance to help us about when it would be appropriate to 
to allow the patient to leave the hospital and return to or go to police custody. Uh, the key bottom line is really you've got to be really cautious about that. You've got to be absolutely sure that there's nothing else going on. Great. Um, you've got the next paper now, Rick, haven't you? Yeah, I had a look at a really interesting paper from Sheffield which looked at something called the discrete event simulation to have a look at um, whether deflecting low-risk presentations from the emergency department to a co-located primary care unit would actually have an impact on overall length of stay in the emergency department. Now, most of us, I think, in the ED will have co-located primary care services now so that if someone turns up, walks in, and the triage nurse recognises that it's a low-acuity presentation, that uh, might be best cared for in primary care, that we can actually send them to a co-located unit and they get their primary care. I think that's established practice. Is that mirror what you've got, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, having worked in a multiple numbers of trusts now, essentially we have a primary care service type model that's next door in the same building, through a different door, different places. But essentially, yes, that that's what we've got. And I'm interested to hear what you've got to say about this paper because I have my own opinions about this as well. <laughs> so, well, the authors have asked what would happen if you had a co-located primary care unit and it was open from 9am to 5pm to divert patients with primary care presentations. Now, the method is really interesting. It's not always possible to do a randomised controlled trial to ask, answer every question, is it? Because it would take a long time. It'd be really expensive and often it's completely unethical to do that. And if you do a simple, you know, before and after intervention, that's also got multiple confounders. Sometimes what you want to do first to understand whether a new configuration of the service, for example, might be beneficial is to simply model it. Use statistics, use, a, a, you know, a, um, a simulation to see if this actually has promise as an intervention. And that's what they've done here. So they've used this discrete event simulation. And what they've done with it is essentially create a bit of a marauder's map. So you sort of you have these simulated patients who are coming into the emergency department and you can sort of simulate the way that they present, the times that they present to mirror reality. And you can say, well, yeah, we're going to say that these patients are high risk or high acuity, these ones are low acuity, and we can simulate what might happen to them as they pro as they go through the emergency department, how long they might spend in each area, through different parts of the care pathway, and the costs, the financial costs that would be accrued at each part of the pathway. And so they can model this using a real database of patients that actually came through. Uh, and they used the Centre for Urgent and Emergency Care Research Database. That's real patient data. And they can see what happened in real life. And then they can simulate what might have happened if they diverted patients to a co-located primary care unit. And what they decided to do is look at the impact on high acuity patients. So it might be good for the low acuity patients that they go and get seen by primary care and they get seen a bit quicker. But what about the rest of the patients? Does it have an impact on them? And they found that by having co-located primary care and diverting the low-risk presentations, you could save an average of 29 minutes in the ED stay for the higher acuity attenders. So your patients in Amber and Resus, who really do need to be there, are benefiting from this scheme by staying 29 minutes less on average in the emergency department. And it cost a bit more but it only costs £6.76 per patient on average. So the bottom line here is that the authors have demonstrated 
that by streaming low-risk patients away from the ED at the front door, your higher-risk patients benefit by having reduced length of stay and it didn't cost very much on average per patient. What do you think about that, Sarah? You said you've got opinions about this. Have we changed them? It doesn't surprise me. But again, I think when we come on to talk about the next paper, I think it really highlights that visual triage assessment. And I think one of the challenges is that actually you need a a really good experienced triage clinician at the front who is able to really allocate patients with a very short history to these areas. And that's great that we're saving half an hour by modelling this. But I think, you know, it would be interesting to know if they did this over 24 hours, because actually nine to five in the, the day is very different to nine to five at night. So, and I don't think at nine to five tonight, so 9pm till 5am, you get the same types of patient. Um, you might do. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I guess that's when we're most under pressure, you know, uh, during those out-of-hours periods, actually. So, yeah, it would be interesting to see what happened to the model. Um, one of the things you do when you model is you have to identify the areas where you're uncertain. So what assumptions have you made and how might it change it? And so you can't just say having a co-located primary care is a good idea because it depends how you work it, how you operate it. And like you say, it depends on that triage nurse making decisions. If patients are liberally sent to primary care and then they end up coming back because they were too sick, would it have the same impact? And also, I mean, my experience is it depends who you've got in your primary care as well, because I've my personal experience has been if you put, you know, even experienced GPs in the fact that they're sat in GP within the hospital setting, they often change what they do because they're in a hospital setting versus what they would do if it was the same room, but in their GP surgery, if that makes sense. So yeah. again, it's it's teasing that out as well. Absolutely, yeah. If it's easy to do the ECG and the blood tests because they're right there, would you do them more often? That's the question. So I think the bottom line for me is this is great, but I'd love to know what it is between you know twenty one hundred and 0500 when actually there isn't as many staff around. It often feels as though there's more patient. That's true. And. I don't think they're the same patients. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And you know what? The one thing I'd really like to see modelled is the impact on the emergency department queue when this shuts. So in my experience, when we've had uh, co-located services that aren't 24-7, let's say they shut at 10pm. Well, at 9.50pm, suddenly a, a load of patients are decanted from that queue into the emergency department queue and it has a big impact on our waiting times because your, your waiting time just suddenly goes up from, let's say, two hours to four hours. And there's no coming back from that when your staff are thinner on the ground during the overnight period. So lots of unanswered questions, but still helpful data to suggest that uh, the, there could be a positive impact on our higher in- acuity patients from this initiative. On a similar vein, or on a similar note, you've taken a look at a paper evaluating telephone triage with NHS 111. Yeah, so this paper, which is titled, How Could Online NHS 111 Reduce Demand for Telephone NHS 111 Service? 
a qualitative study of user and staff views, again from a, the team up in Sheffield. And this paper was really a small bit of a massive study they're doing, trying to understand actually if the online version of NHS 111, which for our non-UK listeners is essentially people can ring up NHS 111 and get advice about where they should go and see help, everything from dental to you know whether you need to see, go to the hospital, whether you need to see a primary care um, physician, those sort of things. And this is predominantly out of hours, but can work, it runs 24 hours a day. And what they were trying to understand is what the issues could be from the staff and the user's point of view about actually if the online version can reduce the impact on the telephone version of NHS 111. And I think what really staggered me was that in 2017 and 2018, Rick, they had 15 million calls to NHS 111. And I would imagine that's probably about the same, if not a little bit more, which is just an absolute staggering amount of calls, don't you think? Well, completely. And, you know, when you when you talk about those numbers... Little changes within the system, you know, in the advice that it provides could have a massive impact on demand for our services. So let's say, you know, there's just a 1% increase in recommendations to attend the ED from that kind of service. You're talking about a staggering number of additional attendances just from that very, very tiny little tweak. So it's one that we clearly have to get right. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the quote in the paper, so some of the background around this is that there was a study in Australia that was done and um, over three years they had a 33% reduction in call volume following the implementation of their online service. So potentially there is some scope there. So what they did, they took um, a some staff that work within NHS 111 and some commissioners um, and they asked them, you know, experience, you know, their experiences and their thoughts and concerns around NHS telephone 111 and actually how the online service could be used or changed to reduce those facts and uh, calls to NHS 111. They did a sort of typical sort of qualitative study, you know, using framework analysis and uh, semi-structured interviews. So what did they find? And is this going to be surprising to you, our listeners? Probably not. <laughs> so some of the findings were around four themes. So there was higher satisfaction for telephone 111 users. And this may be due to improved confidence and trust in the dispositions reached due to an interaction with a health advisor. The second one was NHS 111 Online may provide a useful and convenient adjunct to the telephone service rather than replace it. The third one was NHS 111 Online widens access to NHS 111 services for some subgroups of users who would not access the telephone service. And the last one was around the online 111 version of the service was perceived as more disposable and used more speculatively by users, but staff felt responsible for clinical interactions with online users. So those are the four main themes. Do any of those resonate with you, Rick? Yeah, uh, definitely. Particularly if we look at the confidence and trust in the telephone service, there were some quotes around 
the subjectivity that you can tease out in a telephone call that you can't necessarily in when you use the online service. So there's one quote from a service user which said it was very black and white. There was nothing in the middle. It was very general. It was almost like you can breathe or you can't breathe. There's nothing in the middle. And so there was clearly a desire to have some interaction. The, on, the online service gives you advice, but it doesn't necessarily appreciate nuances and you can't interact with it. So I can very much appreciate that, you know, the telephone call has the advantage over that. And one of the recommendations here seems to be that uh, service users might value some more opportunity for interaction, for example, via a chat function. And again, I think this goes back to what we were saying about your paper and that, you know, it's that visual assessment, it's that seeing or hearing them that, whether objectively or subjectively, makes it feel probably that you're being listened to or understood but also that you can actually do that really quick assessment and use that gestalt over the telephone or by speaking to somebody or in person whereas actually online it's so far removed that actually those and as they use the phrase soft information can be difficult and that shade of gray in the middle can be difficult to tease out can't it so, you know, going forward, you know, tomorrow, if I'm in work, um, you know, how's this going to change things? I think we need to be hugely sympathetic to our w- staff that work for 111. It's a huge number of calls that they are teasing out and triaging and probably saving an awful lot of visits and attendances to the ED. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but I think, you know, actually, thankfully, 15 million people aren't turning up additional to the emergency department every year. Yeah, it's really interesting. Got me thinking this paper because, you know, you think about the future of similar services, the NHS 111. There have been high profile examples, haven't there, of um, chatbots for health that haven't perhaps worked quite so well and perhaps haven't always issued the most safe recommendations. It's, you know, missing obvious myocardial infarctions, things like that. And we certainly don't want to go down that route. But in the era of chat GPT and generative AI, you do wonder whether things might be about to change in the future. And as you know, our ability to have interactive services online might actually add to the telephone. But then again, would the absence of the human interaction mean that people still don't feel adequately reassured or supported or there's some impact on anxiety? So it will be interesting to see how it pans out. Definitely a watch this space, I think, Rick. Absolutely. So let's move on. And I'm going to talk about a paper with uh, the first author, Lucy Bull, which looked at a health coaching intervention. So talking about uh, the importance of a human that you can interact with, here we've got a really interesting randomised controlled trial that we've published here. And it's not, it's not the primary findings of that trial, but there's a reason for that, because the authors had quite a frustration getting the data. What they've looked at here is um, they've, they've, they've sought to identify patients who've attended the ED and then identified as being at high risk of reattendance over the next six months. So there looks like these people might go on to be frequent attendees at our emergency departments. And they wanted to see if a health coaching intervention might help with that, might reduce future attendances. And in this particular paper, they've looked at its impact on 
mortality. I say impact might be more or better described as an association with mortality than an impact. But let's see as we get to the findings. Anyway, as a principle, health coaching for patients who we think are at risk of recurrent attendees. Do you think this has got some mileage, Sarah? Oh, it's really interesting that you we've discussing this paper. I'm just taking on a project looking at social prescribing, of which I think health coaching would be part of social prescribing or part of some of the services that can be you know, involved in it. And that's part of the NHS long term workforce plan is trying to, you know, get people who are high service users or, you know, people with any issues um, access to other types of services of which health coaching may be one of them. So I'm dubious at best um, about this intervention, probably because I've been doing a lot of reading about social prescribing and some of these interventions. But um, I've got my mind open to hear what you've got to say rick well that's really interesting experience that you've got there uh, i feel like there's personally there's a gap here because it is it is an issue when you get you know there, we do get plenty of frequent attendees and sometimes you do wonder whether we might be able to avoid some of those attendances uh by education and working with those patients. So these authors have sought to answer that question. You know, can we coach them uh, to, to make more appropriate use of services and address their needs? So what they've done is they, they've got a, a database of patients who've attended the ED in the last six months. They then screened them. Uh, it was manually screened by a nurse and they applied a, a clinical prediction model. And that model was used to identify those patients who were at the highest risk of reattendance frequently over the next six months. If the patients were flagged as being at high risk, they were then contacted and invited to participate. If they decided that they would like to participate in the trial, they were randomised either to standard care or to this health coaching intervention. And with the health coaching intervention, the patients received an initial face-to-face assessment meeting with one of the health coaches at Health Navigator, who's a registered health professional. And then after the assessment, they got a personalised care plan and it was followed up with a series of one-to-one telephone-based coaching sessions with that same coach. And during that time, the patients received motivational guidance, support for self-care, health education and coordination of social and medical services. The main outcome of the trial was to look at the impact on future emergency department attendances. Now, although the trial finished in 2019, they still haven't got the data for those outcomes, which is must be very frustrating for them. So they've not been able to f- report the main findings. However, they did want to also have a look at mortality. Now, this is a safety endpoint. I think what they were doing here in looking at mortality rates is just showing that if they did health coaching for the patients, they wanted to make sure that patients weren't more likely to die, basically. They weren't looking to show that health coaching reduces mortality, I don't think. That's why it's a safety endpoint. However, their findings were very interesting because of nearly 1,700 patients that were included, they had over 1,000 in the intervention group because they were randomised in a two-to-one ratio. And they found that the mortality rate for men aged over 75 specifically was significantly lower and that effect didn't appear to apply in any of the other groups. 
So if you look at younger men, you look at women, different age groups, there was no effect on mortality. But there was a statistically significant reduction of mortality in men. And the hazard ratio for that was 0.57. So if that's true, it gives us a number needed to treat of eight. So you do eight, you treat eight of these older men with a health coaching intervention to prevent one death. Now, if that's true, that's pretty impressive. But does it pass the test of face validity? What do you think, Sarah? I think it's a watch this space. We probably need a little bit more work. We know that inherently women typically outlive men. And there's lots of research and evidence to suggest lots of reasons as to why this might be. And I wonder whether the health coaching and the health intervention maybe mirroring some of the the things that might be missing for those older men, particularly particularly if they're single, um, that would be there if they were in a partnership or married or something like that. So I wonder whether there's an element of that. I don't know. I am just guessing here. <laughs> um, but I do wonder. I think all that we can do at this point is guess and speculate, isn't it, about what this might be? Is it a completely chance finding? The, the, the thing is, when I looked at the you know the survival curves and the fact that they've adjusted for other other factors, you think, well, maybe there is actually something in it, but I have no idea what caused it. And you might well be right. There might be all sorts of social factors. I wonder whether that difference would persist through generations. You know, it might be a generational thing. Uh, like you say there might be all sorts of social factors. Um, in terms of, you know, typical gendered behaviours, for example, in uh, people from that generation that might help to explain it and also explain the life expectancy and things like that. I don't know. We don't know if these were, like you say, men living alone or men living with other people. Um, but uh, I guess it's worthy of further investigation. Maybe they should do some qualitative research to find out. Well, I think the world is their oyster and hopefully we'll get the rest of their data. But actually... It may be just taking a bit of time because they just need time to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, getting hold of data it can be really frustrating. And I think um, this relies on access to, uh, to big data, essentially, to get the answers to that main question. But four years, is an, nearly five years, is an extraordinarily long time to wait for your data. So I, I, I do hope that that's forthcoming in the very near future. So that brings us to the end of January 2024's Emergency Medicine Journal's primary survey. I do hope this is a new and prosperous year for everyone that's listening to the podcast. And from me, it's a goodbye. And from me too, all the best for 2024.